Open your Bible to John chapter 6. going to be in verses 35 through 51 as we continue our series through the gospel of John. Seeing Jesus on every turn of every page as we exalt him in worship and then we encounter him in his word and in fact encounter him speaking uh, in this passage. I want to speak this morning on the subject of nourishment from the bread of life. Beginning in verse 35, listen to the word of the Lord. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, God, we are thankful for your word, that it is true and living, spoken always into the hearing of people who need truth and life. And Lord, as I prayed earlier, each of us comes with all kinds of backgrounds, present circumstances and situations, all kinds of needs physically, spiritually, and otherwise. And you know each one of us by name. You have the hairs on our head numbered. And Lord, you know precisely how your word needs to speak to each of our lives today. And so we ask that you would minister it just that way Would you speak, Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, and for your glory and our good. God, I ask now, as always, just move me out of the way and use my voice as your instrument today to speak to your people. In Christ's name, amen. 
And you may be seated. Well, last week I suggested that um, everyone wants to be happy, but no one uh, attains complete happiness on this earth. Everybody wants it. No one completely attains it. And so the central point of the message was, do not seek happiness in any created thing, but only in God himself. And I would say in a similar way, there's kind of a, a, a universal truth that the uh, message today speaks to. It, it is uh, this, as I said last week, this passage is just one long discourse. I've broken it up into multiple messages. Jesus is delivering it in one fell swoop, so to speak. And, and so it continues to speak to similar human needs. But we might say in a kind of similar universal way that everyone has moments when they say or think to themselves, there must be more to life than this. There, there must be more to life than this. Ironically, many people arrive at that place at the end of, in some cases, some significant achievement. They've pursued um, career advancement, uh, financial gain, other kind of things that they thought were worthy of their aspirations, and then actually achieved them and still found themselves saying, there must be more to life than this. In many other cases, people haven't yet achieved them. They've just been in pursuit of those things and find themselves um, at the same place. Because what happens along the way is we go after things that satisfy fleshly appetites. We would say using, well, even language that Jesus alludes to here today, but language that we, uh, that we use frequently in the Christian community. And if there's anybody here who's... Uh, not really been immersed in the Christian community. That might be language you're not familiar with. But we're just talking about that, that sort of physical, earthly part of us that connects with and uh, has a, an insatiable appetite for the things of this world. We, we pursue things that are going to satisfy our fleshly appetites and neglect the nourishment of our soul and spirit almost entirely. That is almost the default position of human beings is to go after things that satisfy our fleshly appetites to the neglect of soul and spirit. And we find ourselves starving on the inside in need of nourishment that we're not even seeking after in many cases and come to that place of going, there must be more to life than this. Well, uh, Jesus speaks to that sort of human situation in John chapter 6. Um, I, and I, I, I'm uh, being deliberate about mentioning this because even as I said last week, for those of us who have grown up in uh, Christian circles, the, the language that we use so often and that Jesus uses here, even these I am statements become so familiar that we actually lose sight of their significance to us personally. We, we miss what it is we need to hear about it but he's speaking to something very basic about the human condition. And in John 6, uh, Jesus addresses a crowd of people starving on the inside and don't even know it. Se seeking him as the source of satisfaction for fleshly appetites. The irony is palpable. 
You'll recall that this large crowd had followed Jesus to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He had fed thousands of people there with five loaves and two fish. And then he and his disciples departed, went back across the sea. They ended up in Capernaum. And the following day, some of the crowd uh, that was there with him on the other side of the sea came back themselves to Capernaum looking for him. If we were to read down to the end of uh, this passage, down to verse 59, we would find out that this that we're reading about here transpired in the synagogue. So we have this dialogue not only with some from that crowd he had been speaking to before who had followed him, but also to Jews who are now sort of within range of what he's teaching. And so what we, what we just read about is almost like two exchanges, one with the crowd and then one with the grumbling Jews. And he says similar things uh, that he repeats and kind of cycles through these same themes. But they, they found him there. The rest of chapter 6 is this discourse that followed. And in the portion of the text we looked at last week, the central message came from verse 27, which says, Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Do not work. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Well, this passage, we arrive finally at the moment where Jesus says he is that food that endures to eternal life. In verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. And so in this passage, we, uh, we, we, we draw some lessons about nourishment from the bread of life. And I want to sort of look at it under these headings today. Number one, that Jesus, Jesus Christ is heaven's nourishment for the human soul. And I will say again, every human soul needs him. Every human soul is longing for him, even though most human souls will deny him. They won't accept that he is what they need, but it is what every human being needs. He is heaven's nourishment for the human soul. Second, that this nourishment is received by faith. Third, that it is for God's people and uh, fourth, that its reward is eternal life. I want to look quickly under those headings and then just talk about some uh, practical ways that we might actually apply some of this. But number one, that Jesus is heaven's nourishment for the human soul. In verses 35 and 48, he says, I am the bread of life. And in verse 51, I am the living bread. This is the first of seven I am statements. It is one of the um, sort of unique features of John's gospel, the way that he's organized his message. There are the seven signs that we've been encountering, uh, several of already, and then seven I am statements. Um, and and the, those statements themselves have a sort of a hint of his, uh, his own identification as God. He's using that language of the way God identified himself in his name. I am who I am. I am that I am. The great I am. And Jesus says here, I am the bread of life. He'll say in six other ways things that he is. But that of all the, of all the things of earth, on earth, that, that people have looked for, solutions to their problems and satisfaction to their needs for and so on, Jesus will say, I am that. I am that. So this is the first of seven of those. And he says it against the backdrop 
of the people's reference to the manna which their fathers ate in the wilderness, which was bread from heaven. You may remember the story when the Israelites uh, left Egypt and then went into a period of wandering in the wilderness that God fed them with bread from heaven. Manna, what is it? And every day they would wake up and there would be provision there. And uh, it was continual. So continual, they sort of lost their appetite for manna. <laughs> lost their taste for manna. But it was continual and it was sufficient. And Jesus is, for humanity, nourishment of the same sort. Bread from heaven that is continual and sufficient. Continual to a whole different degree though, right? That, they, that, that those who eat this will never die. This is forever bread. Not just for all of your life bread, but forever bread. It's spiritual in nature rather than physical, unlike manna. But Jesus had said in verse 32 that my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now again, he's, making, he's drawing this analogy as God gave your Father's bread from heaven. He now gives true bread from heaven, which is he who comes down from heaven. Verse 33, he says that uh, the bread is he who comes down from heaven. In verse 38, I have come down from heaven. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven. Verse 51, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Jesus, I believe, wants us to know that he comes from heaven. <laughs> and you may have noticed the Jews were like, this is, this is a son of Joseph and Mary. We know them. Who is he to say, I come from heaven? We know where he comes from. But no, they don't know where he comes from. But he came from heaven, and he himself is that continual and all-sufficient nourishment that the human soul needs. And I can't say it often enough to say it is the need that every human being has. It is true of everybody here. It is true of everybody you will pass on the way home. It is true of everybody you'll stand behind in line at the grocery store or wherever you go today and this week. Everybody Everybody has a starving human soul, and Jesus is the answer for it. He is heaven's nourishment for the human soul. Second, this nourishment from heaven is received by faith. Because how do we partake of that? And again, we'll get to, in the end, so, something that hopefully at least approaches practical in that regard. But how do you partake of spiritual food? Well, it is by faith. He says in verse 35, this is for whoever comes to me. Or again in verse 35, whoever believes in me. There's that word again, belief, uh, belief and have faith. It could, it could be translated to both uh, the same way. Verse 40, everyone who looks on the sun and believes. Verse 47, it is for whoever believes. Whoever believes in me. That is how we receive that nourishment from heaven. <clears throat> and we ought to notice also uh, that those who believe in Jesus are to demonstrate their faith by coming to him. Real faith takes action. We are never 
we are never given any confidence that simply uh, giving mental intellectual assent to certain truths or certain propositions is sufficient for our salvation. That we believe enough to align our lives accordingly. It is whoever comes to him. And so you, you might say, um, like other kinds of physical nourishment, uh, many of us have been told at different times about diets that were supposed to have extraordinary health benefits, right? In some cases, extraordinary. Not like any other diet you ever heard. This diet is the best diet. The research says so, right? You know about those, right? Everybody's got their research. Everybody's diet is the one you were you never heard about, but now you should. But we've, we've heard about these that have some uh, great health benefits. So it might be a detox diet or a health, a heart-healthy diet or, or an anti-cancer sort of diet and so on. But there is no, nobody has any mistake about the fact that there's no health benefit for somebody who simply believes that the diet will work. It only offers that benefit if you actually eat what it is that that diet prescribes, right? If you actually partake of it. It is, it is not simply sufficient for your health to believe that a detox diet will detox you. You actually have to eat that food or drink those juices. You can have those juices, I'm going to tell you. But there's, there's, there's no benefit just for those who uh, intellectually assent to that. It is we, we, we follow him. We those who believe that Jesus is the true bread of life must come to him and feed on him by faith in order to receive the reward of that nourishment. Uh, so it is received by faith. It is for whoever believes in him. But then again, number three says, it's for God's people. That this nourishment is for God's people. When, when God provided manna in the wilderness, he provided it for his people. There was not manna all over the wilderness. There probably weren't a whole lot of people living in the wilderness either. But he made provision for his people in the wilderness. And in a similar way, God now provides Christ for his people. This is one of many passages actually in the, in the Bible, in particular in the New Testament, that create uncomfortable tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in salvation. People get a little uncomfortable talking about God's sovereignty in salvation. If you're not uncomfortable with that, I'll make you uncomfortable here in just a minute, perhaps. Because he has just said repeatedly that this offer is to whoever believes and whoever comes, but then he also says that those who believe and those who come are those who belong to him. Look what he says in verse 37. All the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Verse 39, he says, I will lose nothing of all that he has given to me. Verse 44, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. You feel the tension? 
And so you'll notice this is all over the Bible. God does, does not care that it makes us uncomfortable, it appears. I mean, in other words, because he just says it and moves on. It doesn't try to sort of soften the blow for us. He just declares that he is sovereign and man is responsible all at the same time. Matter of fact, Acts 13, 48 uh, says, this is uh, out of the, from the pen of Luke. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? As many as were appointed to eternal life. And guess what? All of those who did not believe were responsible for their unbelief. As we'll say today, at the end of this message, as always, there is a, not only an opportunity, but exhortation to respond. And uh, for any who have not ever trusted in Jesus Christ, don't believe in him, that invitation is to you today. And if you choose not to believe in him, that is your responsibility. You understand what I'm saying? And here's the other encouragement. Because there may be some today who think uh, the reason you've not followed Jesus, trusted in him, is because you think you're just not acceptable to him. You've, you've sinned too much. You've gone too far. You, you, it's too bad, your past. And so even though you, you, you sort of want to draw near, you feel like he won't receive you. And the very fact that he continues to draw you is some indication that yes, he will receive you. It is an unconditional offer. He doesn't just claim the, the clean sheep, but the dirty ones in particular that he does the cleaning for. And it goes on to say not only that uh, he calls those who belong to him, but those he calls, he keeps. Those he calls, he keeps. Verse 37 again says, I will not cast out any who come to me. I will raise them up on the last day. Verse 39 and 45. There is certainty. Those he calls, he keeps. You can't slip out of his hand. Nobody can snatch you out of his hand. Even in your waywardness, your wandering heart, and all of that, you can't, you can't wiggle away. His grace is sufficient to keep you. And he'll raise you up on the last day. Uh, both of those truths ought to be encouragement and give a sense of security to the believer that we remain in his grip, even when we fail him, even when we get distracted by worldly things. So we can, we can pray for people, we can declare with our mouths and make known his uh, faithfulness to all generations. We can and must do that. And yet he is uh, sovereignly attending to all of that in ways that we don't understand. I, I heard somebody say uh, uh, not too long ago in, in conversation this uh, metaphor of, 
of uh, essentially uh, approaching God, approaching Jesus Christ in that doorway there. And over the doorway, it says, whosoever will may come. And you get through the doorway and turn around and look on the backside of it, and it says, chosen from the foundation of the world. See, these are the twin truths, right? The invitation to everybody who will. And on the other side of that, increasingly we look back and see God's sovereign, loving, gracious hand on our lives long before we had believed and trusted in him and followed him. It is amazing grace, and it is a sweet, sweet thing for all who know it. It's for his people. And then fourth, uh, its reward is eternal life. And eternal life, we often think of it as everlasting life. It is that. Eternal life is life that does not end. It says in verse uh, 50 and 51, as, as much as that, it, it refers to it in that way, to people who will never die. But it's also life of a certain quality, not just a quantity of life, not just life without end, but life of a certain quality, life fitting of the age to come. We read the end of Revelation, I uh, read from this, preached from this uh, Monday evening at a memorial service, that we read about the new heaven and the new earth. Right Where he wipes away all tears, there will be no more crying, no more pain, death will be no more, and so on. That age is befitting of a certain quality of life, and eternal life is that. Quality of life. But, uh, in fact, I read one, one quote, I'll sort of paraphrase it, because the language was a little archaic. Uh, But eternal life is not simply living in time without end, but a kind of living in which time is not a measure. Okay, not just living in time without end, but a a kind of living in which time is not a measure. You might not be gripped immediately by the significance of that, but if you would pause and think about how much stress in life comes from the fact that we live uh, in a life in which time is very much a measure. You'll find yourself, um, as a young person, think you've got to hurry on and conquer the world. I would tell you, if you are a young person, you just wait. Be patient. The, The world will wait for you to conquer it. But you just can't wait to sort of bust out of the gates in a hurry to get about your life. You have children and uh, suddenly you arrive at the point that where they're entering kindergarten and you're going, how in the world did we get to this place? And then you blink twice, they're graduating from middle school and you're, and you're scurrying to try to hold on to the last few years of life before they graduate and, and go to college and leave the house. You do similar things with your career and then the older you get, the, the, the faster time seems to move. And you feel time in a whole different way, right? And you could go, we could go on and on and on. In other words, there is so much about life that is stressful and burdensome simply because we live in a world in which time is a measure. The offer then of eternal life, a kind of living where time is not a measure at all, where you're never hurried 
There's never a day when you forgot an appointment yesterday. And again, you could go on and on and on about time is not a measure in eternal life. But it's also not only future, but present. Eternal life is not only something that awaits us in the future, it is present. There are a number of Bible verses that would suggest as much. Uh, I'm just going to read a couple of them. But John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. Whoever believes, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has presently eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If you've believed in Jesus, you presently have eternal life. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, Jesus said, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, that those who know God have eternal life in the present. So there's, you, you, you might imagine the, the uh, sort of picture of uh, like a super high tide or even like storm surge from a hurricane where uh, the surge is simply a really, really high tide. But it comes in and then it goes back out. And so eternity has, has entered into creation. Uh, and 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 touches us. And then at the appointed time, at the end of the age, it recedes and it will take some with it uh, into a life without end and a life where time is, is no measure. But even right now, we're touched by heaven and by life eternal. As I said, there are other verses like that. Those will have to suffice. But it's not only life without end, but a quality of life befitting the age to come, and we're offered a taste of that life in the present. That is the reward of the, of the heaven's nourishment for the human soul is eternal life. Well, what do we do with that, and, and how can we make that at all practical? Because, again, the, the great risk is that everything I've said so far is so very familiar to Christians that it seems Almost irrelevant. Yeah, 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 I did that. And if that's your thought, uh, you've missed part of the point. And so please pay attention starting now. Because <laughs> most of us, even as believers, most of us spend most of our time satisfying physical, fleshly appetites. Those appetites don't go away when we become uh, believers and neither does our desire to satisfy them, neither do the habits that we have formed in satisfying them all the time. And meanwhile, as I said earlier, our inner person is starved and rarely is our inner person shouting at us for attention. Our flesh, by contrast, is always shouting at us for attention. Our body is the sort of squeaky wheel that gets the grease. You know that saying, the squeakiest of, squeaky wheel always gets the grease? Our body is that. Our flesh is the squeaky wheel, always demanding that its needs be met. It's like the one sibling in many households, the one sibling who speaks so loudly as if he or she is speaking for all the other siblings. Often it's the oldest sibling just by kind of 
for understandable reasons. Not always the, the oldest one, though. And maybe some of you were that child. In fact, I'm pretty sure some of y'all were that child. <laughs> but uh, maybe some of you were that child or, or you had multiple children and you, and you know that sort of experience where there's, there's one who's always speaking the loudest and the others just sort of settle into their station in life, their place in the family is to just be quiet. And you're always hearing one voice and never hearing the other or others. Our flesh is like that. Sometimes whiny, sometimes bossy, always demanding, never satisfied. That is your flesh and mine. Whiny, bossy, always making demands and never satisfied. And so what do we do? Well, Galatians 5, uh, 16 and 17, I, I think offers some help. This could be a whole sermon by itself. But he speaks to, Paul speaks to this sort of reality where he says, I, I, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That whole passage is a wonderful one. You ought to go read it even this afternoon. Because he talks about the, uh, what is the sort of work of the flesh and what is the fruit of the spirit what that, that follows this. But walk by the Spirit, you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. They, they compete against each other, and the flesh will keep you from doing the things you want to do. That is a profound truth right there, and every one of us needs to know it. That our flesh is whiny and bossy and demanding, and if we listen to it and if we obey it, we'll always be doing things that we don't want to do that we don't really want to do. Your flesh will insist that its desires are your real desires. But it'll keep you from doing what you want to do. Well, one of the practical ways when you talk about how, how do you walk by the Spirit, and that can become itself sort of a, a squishy, nebulous sort of concept and hard to get your hands around. But one of the practical ways... I would suggest we can endeavor to walk by the Spirit is to do what uh, is referred to as practicing the presence of God. That comes from um, a 17th century monk uh, who was known as Brother Lawrence. Some of you are maybe familiar with that, um, with that book, a little book based on some conversations and letters that he had had. He entered a monastery at age 40 served there as a cook until right before his death at age 80. And what he discovered personally about the spiritual life is what he recommended to others. And I'll, I'll mention just a few highlights from that. But he said that we should establish ourselves in a habitual sense of God's presence by continually conversing with him. This is what Brother Lawrence discovered in his own spiritual journey to be the sort of the secret, if you will, of walking in the Spirit, of continually conversing with God, habitually 
in his presence. He says that we should feed and nourish our souls with high notions of God. And that the presence of God was a subject which contains the whole spiritual life. That's actually quite a statement, and I'm sure one that people would, <laughs> would take issue with or want to debate. But, but he said that the presence of God was a subject which contains the whole spiritual life. Whoever duly practices it will become spiritual. That if you want to walk in the Spirit, one of the ways that, that, that you can endeavor to do that is by striving to be continually in the presence of God. And so, for example, um, as, as Brother Lawrence did in the kitchen, he said he, he came to the point where for him in his conversation with God, his, the, his time at work in the kitchen was no different to him than his time in the scheduled hours for prayer, which were a regular part of every day in the monastery. There were times where they left their work and they went to prayer. He said for him it was no different. Just continually being in conversation with the Lord. And so, invite the Holy Spirit everywhere you go. I really mean this, okay? If, if you want to, if you, if you would really, if you've maybe come to the point yourself, once again, where you've said, there's got to be more than life to this. I feel starved on the inside. One of the, one of the things you might uh, experiment with is inviting the Holy Spirit everywhere you go. Leave a seat open for him. Maybe even your workplace, put, in, put a seat uh, in the corner <laughs> as your own reminder that you've invited him into your presence. You've heard of take your daughter to work day. This is sort of take the Holy Spirit to work day, every day. And take the Holy Spirit to play, take the Holy Spirit home Take the Holy Spirit to the grocery store and be as often as you remember it in conversation with the Holy Spirit. And as often as you realize you've forgotten it to get back into conversation with the Holy Spirit. Now that is simple, but you know as well as I, without even having to try it, that's not easy, right? Because I do have a lot of other voices shouting, and unlike Brother Lawrence, I don't work in the kitchen in a monastery, right? There's a lot, more, a lot of stuff going on, simple but not necessarily easy. But here's even what Brother Lawrence said. Uh, this wasn't easy for him either. He said, I suffered much for the first 10 years trying to do this, trying to develop that habit and that discipline. But the reward of having done that was, was life-changing for him. So invite the Holy Spirit wherever you go and, 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 and try to engage frequently, constantly in conversation with him. Uh, related to that, develop a list of just little one-sentence prayers that you can utter, even for yourself, as just a reminder of his presence and of your desire to to be in his presence and remain in his presence. One of Brother Lawrence's was, uh, his little one-line prayer was, My God, here I am, all devoted to you. Make me according to your heart. Here I am, all devoted to you. Make me according to your heart. It's just a little reset when you realize your mind has gone elsewhere. When you are 
given what for to the person who cut you off in traffic? You forgot you saved the seat beside you for the Holy Spirit. And you just have these little one-line prayers that, that reset you and, and engaging constantly in conversation with him and in his presence. That is one very practical means. Is again, a simple one, not at all an easy one, but a, but a practical means of walking in the Spirit by inviting him into uh, every passing minute of your life and even engaging with him in conversation um, all along the way. And what Brother Lawrence experienced to be true, uh, perhaps others would if they stuck with it for three decades as he did, but that the presence of God was a subject which contains the whole spiritual life. If you uh, duly practice it, you will become spiritual. That, that was his. He, he was certain of that. From his own experience. I won't oversell that necessarily, but what, I, but what I will say is we know we've got to move uh, this concept of spiritual nourishment of our, our soul to something practical and something willful that we do to feed on Christ. Because our default setting is to feed our flesh and neglect our soul and spirit, much to our detriment. And so we walk by the Spirit, and we will much more likely not gratify the desires of the flesh. I might add to that, by the way, another practical thing that you can do in this endeavor is to fast uh, with some regularity. This, this may be helpful, in other words, on some schedule. It might be one meal, one day a week, um, one day, ever so often, or whatever. But, but fasting is one way to uh, tell your flesh it is not the boss. Okay, just a, just a practical way to say, uh, you're not in charge, and I just want to remind you. If you've got a pet that begs for food, there's a temptation just to give it some food to make it be quiet. It doesn't work, does it? It does not work. And so what you got to do every once in a while is starve your pet. That's sorry, I overstated that a little bit. But uh, don't, don't, feed, you know, don't feed the begging pet. And in a similar way, uh, some discipline by which you, you don't feed on purpose, you don't feed your flesh and its demands. Fasting is one of the ways you can do that. And not only fasting from food, there might be other things, other appetites you have for worldly things that you need to decide to put away. Maybe regularly or maybe all the time. But to say, uh, my flesh and its appetites are not the boss here. You're whiny and you're bossy, but you're not in charge. And I'm... I'm receiving nourishment from Jesus himself, of Jesus himself, because that's the, the real deep need of the human soul. Well, as we conclude here, there, there may be some uh, here this morning, as I said, some maybe who, who are believers in Jesus, some who are not, either way, who are back at that point of saying, there, there must be something more to life than this. I've, I've, I've gone down this road 
pursuing things that are just empty. And my, my soul is starved. And what you need to do today is to come to Jesus. Believe in him. Receive by faith what it is that he's offered. Because you, you, that need will not go away. That need will not go away. And you will continue to try to feed it with other things. And it will never be satisfied. I'm not just trying to hammer bad news to you. I'm just telling you the truth. And the sooner you come uh, to grips with that reality, even if it's for the dozenth time, you're saying, Jesus, here I am again, needing to be reminded that you are the real nourishment I, I need. Would you feed my starving soul? Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this infinitely good provision you made to a starving world in Jesus Christ himself. And every one of us knows the experience of just refusing, failing to feed our inner person, pursuing satisfaction of all kinds of fleshly, physical appetites and desires. So Lord, I just pray by your spirit today, would you move us to a place of response where we would receive from you uh, the abundant, um, continual, sufficient nourishment that we need and that you've offered us change lives today by this decision, change the uh, direction of lives because of the decision that people will make to receive Jesus, to feed on him, and to find him to be all satisfying in the deepest of ways. Have your way among us, we ask in his name. Amen.